To Father, we come because you are the Lord of our lives. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You're the one who has granted to us eternal life. And Father, as we live each day in this world, we often are looking, uh, cause to look forward to that day when we will be uh, together with you and, and the bride of Christ in your, your eternally abode. And we know, Father, that uh, you have put us here, however, to serve you, to be strong in the Lord, to be faithful in all that you've called us to do, to be as a city set upon a hill, uh, shining forth the light of the gospel to those around us. And Lord, I pray that'll be a practical thing in our everyday walk, that the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, whether it be at work or play or school or wherever it might be at home, that we will remember that we are yours and our, our goal is to be Christ-like in our actions and our attitudes and in our words. Help that to be a reality, Lord. And when we fail, pick us up, dust us off, and set us on the, on the course again with that sense of commitment to you. Lord, I pray that you will direct us now today as we look at Israel, often falling, often being picked up, often being sent again onto the course you set before them. And even though it was a long course, we're grateful, Lord, that the victory was theirs as they trusted in you. And so as we study this uh, passage today, illumine our minds according to your will. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, beginning at verse 10. 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, beginning at verse 10. Now the sons of Israel moved out and camped in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ayabarim, in the wilderness which is opposite Moab to the east. From there they set out and camped in the Wadi Zared. From there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa, and the wadis of the Arnon, the, slopes, the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to Beer, that is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them water. Well, let's look at that enlightening passage uh, as this morning and discover what uh, God might say to us from what can be very mysterious, particularly if we're not very familiar with the uh, topography of this part of the world. The passages that we have studied just previously are passages that deal particularly the passage uh, having to do with the serpent being raised up in the wilderness occurred in an area which, if you look at your particular map that I handed out to you this morning, was probably in the southern part of the Arabah south of the country of Edom and probably north of the head of the Gulf of Aqaba. Again, uh, mentioning to you that the Red Sea sort of looks like a forearm coming up with two fingers uh, sticking up and uh, the finger to the west being the Gulf of Suez and the finger to the right being the Gulf of Aqaba and that piece of land in that triangle being the Sinai Peninsula being the place where the Israelites wandered for 40 years, or at least part of the place, uh, you know, where they wandered part of that 40-year period of time. So somewhere in that gap between the head of the Gulf and the southern border of Edom was where 
the, the Israelites were struck by the fiery serpents, and God dealt with them in judgment there. In this passage, which we have just read this morning, where we discover that the Israelites are moving up the east side of Edom. Now, I didn't draw borders on there because <laughs> the borders of the countries in those days, ex except where they came to the sea or where they came to a river, were rather uh, you know, nebulous, particularly as they trailed out into the wilderness and into the desert area. Even today, if you look at a map of Saudi Arabia, you'll often discover that the border between Saudi Arabia and the Oman and the countries on the southern end of the peninsula there, sometimes they're just put in dashed lines, which means, ah, the border's sort of in here somewhere. It's out in the middle of the desert. It, it faces on the Rubah Kali, which is called the Empty Quarter. Nobody lives out there. And so where the border is is kind of immaterial. Well, for this uh, time period we're talking about, the borders were not surveyed. There was nothing by which they could clearly demark them, and it wasn't very important. And so somewhere to the east of Edom, in territory the Edomites might possibly have claimed, but at least so far out that they didn't, uh, Edomites didn't really know that they were there. Now several cities, or I shouldn't say cities, they may have just be, been campsites, are mentioned here in this particular passage. The location of Oboth, for example, is unknown. The word Oboth means water skins, and out in the desert, that, of course, is always a very nice-sounding word, you know, water skins, you, you know, bag with water in it, which was always uh, the means by which water was carried through the desert in those days. But it was most likely located on the plateau area to the east of where you see Edom located on your map there. Aya Abarim is also unknown in terms of where it was exactly located, except that it was probably in the upper reaches of the Wadi Zarid. The, the word Aya Abarim basically means pass-throughs, or we might interpret that to mean gateways. And often places were named by either the inhabitants of the area or Israel as they passed through, having to do with what they did there. Aya Abarim is a gateway to this further conquest, this further movement to the north towards the goal of conquering Canaan. Now the Wadi Zerid is an important uh, body of water. I shouldn't even call it a body of water. In Arabic, you have the word Wadi. And, and the word Wadi usually refers to a gorge through which an intermittent stream flows. In the wintertime, there's water in it. In the dead of summer, there's no water in it. In Hebrew, they use the word nahal, which means flowing stream, and it usually is used to apply to a perennial stream, one that, ro uh, that flows all the time or at least most of the year. The Wadi Zared, therefore, is one in which part of the earth goes dry. Let me just say something about this part of the world uh, geographically so we have a, a picture of it. If you've not been to the Near East, particularly if you've not been to Israel or Jordan, uh, you may not realize that it's a very dry land most of the year, especially in the summertime. The climate there is, is almost identical to that of the southern part of the state of California, the northern part of Mexico. In fact, uh, the Dead Sea, which is the region we're talking about, is at almost exactly the same latitude as is the border between California and Mexico. And as you, if you've been down in that part, you know it's a very dry area. And located on the west side of the continent, just as California and Mexico are, the climate is very similar. It's what is known in, the, um, in geographic terms as a CSA climate, which means temperate, summer dry, very warm. 
And when you get to the other side of the Dead Sea and the other side of the Jordan Valley, you've actually got a little bit of a rain shadow effect created by the ridge of hills that runs down through, uh, through Canaan. And so it's relatively dry on the east side of the Jordan, and particularly on the east side of the Dead Sea. So as, you, uh, as they move through this area, they're moving through an area that is at, at very best steppe land, semi-arid land. It's land that's good for raising sheep and goats and things like that, but it's not real good land for what we would call dry farming. In fact, you're not going to be effective as a dry farmer in that area. And that's why Israel, of course, has invented uh, and become the world's leader in, uh, irrig in drip irrigation farming because so much of the land is very dry. So the Zered is, is a river that only flows part of the time. And they're, they're camping in the upper reaches of that particular little uh, creek. The Zered, the word Zered is not certain in its origin, but it's believed to mean brook of the willows. Obviously meaning somewhere along its course, willows grew and uh, probably they were so rare that they noted it, you know, brook of the willows. It's like if you are familiar at all with central, the central portion of northern Africa out in the Sahara Desert, there's a huge mountainous area known as the Ahagar. And in the middle of the Ahagar, there are some remnant trees left from when this t that whole North African area was more of a parkland. And uh, those trees are so important that they actually are numbered and have a plaque on them with a number. And if you cut one down one of those trees, you forfeited your life, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, these are, they're so rare. I mean, there's something like 200 of them left, individual trees. And so you can understand why a tree in this part of the world <laughs> is noted. And, and so often you discover them referred to in, in Scripture. The Zared, as you notice in your map, is the main stream flowing into the southern end of the Dead Sea. It's also generally, or was generally known as the border between Moab and Edom. So the Edomites lived to the south of Zered, the Moabites lived to the north of the Zered. After coming or camping at the Wadi Zered, the Israelites continued northward on a parallel course. They followed up the east side of Edom and now they're moving up the east side of Moab because God had said, you may not touch the Edomites and the Moabites at this time. And so they're moving up the east side of, the, of these two countries to the north. And they move until they come to the Nahal Arnon. Now the Arnon is more perennial in its flow than the Zered, and the word Ar Arnon in fact means rushing stream, some of the year. <laughs> it's a rushing stream. And, and it's the principal tributary to the Dead Sea from the east. Now if you can kind of picture this whole thing now, uh, you're just looking at little lines on a piece of paper and it doesn't really give you anything, but if you move north, you're moving upward across the Zered onto the plateau east of the Dead Sea, and that plateau continues all the way to Mount Hermon in the north. And, and that plateau south of the Sea of Galilee and north of the Dead Sea is called Gilead. From the, nor from the, from the Sea of Galilee north to Mount Hermon, it's called Bashan. In all of its extent, it runs two to three, in some places, almost 4,000 feet above sea level. So, and, and the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So as water comes off of those highlands, when it does rain there, and it cuts through those, those um, gorges, it cuts deeply because almost all that 
land on the east side is sandstone and it's subject to erosion. And as those torrents cut down through, they incise steep canyons. So the Zerat is in a deep canyon. The Arnon is in a yet deeper canyon and the Jabbok even deeper yet as it slices down to bring water down into the Jordan Valley or the Dead Sea coming out of those highlands to the east. So we're not talking about what we're accustomed to here. Nice rolling hills, you know, nice little valleys like this. We're talking about and we'll notice how that becomes a problem for them here even at the Arnon. The lower course of the Arnon, the last 20 miles of the Arnon, the Arnon has cut a, a canyon that's about two miles wide at its top, but at, the, at river level, it's 100 feet across from wall to wall. So you can imagine you're coming along and you've got these two million people here and you went across the Arnon. <laughs> a bit of a problem, you know, a bit of a problem. And fortunately, they were traveling so far to the east that they were where the Arnon tends to flatten out because of lesser flow of water, the many distributaries that branch out from there. So they were able to cross the Arnon to the east where it was not as deep. Because as you approach the Dead Sea, uh, before it actually goes down into the, the canyon where the Dead Sea is, I mean, the walls of the Arnon are 15, 1,700 feet high. You know, so it's not exactly uh, something you would... Uh, try to push herds through if you could avoid it. And so they moved further to the east. Now the scripture tells us that the Arnon formed the border between Moab and the Amorites. So the Zerad between Edom and Moab and the Arnon between Moab and the, uh, and the, and the Amorites. These were very uh, good borders because they were natural features that uh, you know, inhibited transportation and travel. Now the journey is taking place so far to the east from where they're ultimately headed that it seems circuitous. But the important point was it kept Israel from conflict with these two people, the Edomites and the Moabites. God had forbidden them to attack them because they were relatives. <laughs> you remember the Edomites were descended from Jacob's brother Esau. The Moabites were descended from Lot's, well, from Abraham's nephew Lot. You remember the story of Lot? He was shoved out of Sodom by the, by the angels and he chased off up into the hill country. And then his daughters, you know, their husbands didn't come along. The daughters were so forlorn, you know, their world had been destroyed. And, and so they get their father drunk. And, and by their own father, each of the two gals become pregnant. And one of them bears Moab and the other one ban, bears Ben-Ami, who becomes the father of the Ammonites. And so God forbids Israel at this time to touch the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites because they are relatives of Jacob. Now later on, some of those prohibitions will be removed, but at this point they are not to touch these, their relatives. And so as they move to the north, they finally come to the Arnon. And when they cross the Arnon, they're in the territory of the Amorites, and there is no prohibition from God relative to the Amorites. They are fair game as far as Israel is concerned. The problem is they are a very warlike people. Now, as we read through this passage, you probably discovered that from verse 15 uh, on down for a ways uh, that you have some strange wording there. This is a song, verses 14 and 15 particularly. Uh, this is a song, this is a chant that Israel chanted there in the desert. Uh, 
Moses says there that it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Now, if you turn in, in your Bibles to the book of the wars of the Lord, yeah, right, it's not there, right? It's not even in the Apocrypha. In fact, it's not even anywhere. And that's because it's no longer extant. Whatever was the uh, reference that Moses is making here, and there are other references in Scripture to other writings which no longer exist. And the only reason we know they ever existed is because the Scripture says they existed. And so Moses is quoting from what was apparently being written at the very time because they hadn't done any of this stuff until they got here. And so Moses is quoting from the, the uh, war song, war chant, I guess you could say, that was being written down at the very time. The Wahab in Sufa. Isn't that inspiring? <laughs> and the Wadis of the Arnon. And the slope of the Wadis that extend to the side of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. I mean, doesn't that just drive you forward? It's like sink the main, you know, remember the main, remember the Alamo kind of idea here, except to us it's rather meaningless. But to Israel it was very meaningful. You're probably aware of the fact that uh, we, have this, we have something similar. Uh, the United States Marine Corps, for example, sings from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. What is the purpose of such a song? To remind them of past victories, <laughs> to live up to your history, to be a man for your nation as the men of the past have been, be willing to die for your cause. And that's the purpose of a song like this that Israel will remember the feats of the past and be inspired to do them again. What in the world are the halls of Montezuma? Most Marines, I'm sure, unless somebody explains the song to them, <laughs> haven't a clue. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, oh, wonderful. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Muammar Gaddafi, remember a while back when he was such a pain in the neck, and Reagan sent over all the bombers to, to try to take him out. At that point, a lot of people were reminded of the fact that one of the earliest wars in our history was against that same place. Uh, not the same man, of course, but that same place back in 1805 when they were the Barbary pirates. And uh, we attacked them because they were causing us a big pain. And Marines captured the port of Tripoli there. And that was one of the earliest great successes of United States Marines. They were just barely a brand new unit in the United States Navy. And of course, Halls of Montezuma refers to the Mexican-American War. But that's just uh, aside from the, the point here. The point is that this was an inspirational song that was given so that Israel might, might be inspired to deeds of valor in, in days ahead. Now, Wahab, Sufa, and Ar which are mentioned in this chant, are unknown sites today. We don't know where they are located except for the fact that they had to be uh, in the general vicinity of the Arnon, probably in, on the edge of Moabite territory. And, and so the Israelites, of course, certainly were, aware, well, were well aware of where they were at the time and made a big deal about them. But see, these are the encampments from which they will now move into a new era in their history. Because from these encampments, they cross the Arnon and they launch into territory which they are allowed to have. For 40 years, they've been vagabonds, wandering in the wilderness, unable to possess any land and generally not even wanting to possess the land, even if they could possess it. And going to Moses and said, saying, why have you left 
led us out of Egypt into this miserable land, you know. Of course, they didn't want it. But now they're moving into land which they can capture and they can keep. They're excited. They're actually in Amorite territory. In verse 16, from there they continued to beer, that is the well. In Hebrew, the word beer does not mean what it does in English. It means a well where the Lord said to Moses, assemble the people that I may give them water. And so they have traveled to this site. Now let me clue you. There are many beers in that part of the world. So locating this one would be extremely difficult simply because it simply means a well. And of course, the one that's been most famous to us so far in the history of Israel is Beer Sheva, Beer Sheva, uh, the well at Sheva, which of course was home to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a significant part of time. There God provided the people with water. Notice, there's no mention of grumbling. There's no mention of complaining. Oh, Moses, you've bled us out. There's no water, and so Moses leads them to a well. No, there's, there's nothing. Does this mean they've learned their lesson? <laughs> hmm, sounds like there's a little doubt out there. <laughs> well, maybe momentarily, but certainly not in the long run, as we well know from studying the history of these people. God simply instructed Moses to lead the people to this particular place so that he could give them water. Now, the 19th century German commentator Delich says this. He says, they proceeded thence to Beer, a place of encampment which received its name from the fact that here God gave the people water, not as before, by a miraculous supply from a rock, but by commanding wells to be dug. This is evident from the ode with which the congregation commen uh, commemorated this divine gift of grace. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staves. A spontaneous song, Spring up, O well. Of course, we've modified it today, you know, <laughs> splish, splash, <laughs> and whatever else it is we do. But, I mean, this was a serious song, a joyous song, spring up, oh well. And I think they were singing it as the people were digging, please spring up, oh well, you know, as they were trying to bring water out of the ground. Now, the wording of verse 18 can be very confusing. It says, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with the staff. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of digging a well with a staff seems a little slow, you know, pound, 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 pound. <laughs> Might be a while before you can pound a hole deep enough to get water with a staff. It's not what it means. What, what it means, I mean, we have to realize this is a poem. And, and as you well know, poets take quite a bit of liberty with not only the use of the language, but with, with meaning. It means, of course, that the well was dug under the authority of the leaders. The staff and the scepter are symbols of authority. And thus, under the authority of these leaders, the people dug the wells. At the command of the leaders, the people dug the wells. And they were invoking their leaders by mentioning them, by saying, which the nobles of the people dug. They're giving credit to the leaders. They're invoking their names. And, of course, all of it is part of what God has done and commanded them to do. This is a song by which they wanted to commemorate 
a never-to-be-forgotten event, which, of course, within a few years was probably <coughs> forgotten. At the end of verse 18, from the end of verse 18 through verse 20, we have, again, a description of the route of travel. Again, terms that probably are totally unfamiliar to most of us. And from Matanah, Nahalil, and from Nahalil to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley which is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. They journeyed northward, is what that says. <laughs> Across what is known today as the Medaba Plateau. And they're moving towards Heshbon, which if you have your map, you'll notice is up there uh, to the north of this spot. They're moving towards Heshbon. And along the way, they camp at a place called Matana, which means gift. And then they camped at a place called Nahalil. Nahal means stream. El means God, the stream of God. It's very common for them to do things like this. You'll discover how many people's names end in El and how many place names end in El. They give credit to God often along the way in both persons and places. And then they camp at Bamoth, which means high place. Not high place as in go up here and look out over the city. High place as in a place where you worship pagan gods. Now these, again, are sites unknown to us today except in the general sense of where they were located. We know for sure that they were north of the Arnon and south of Heshbon. They were in that gap there somewhere, all of which is today in modern Jordan. It's territory that the Amorites had recently taken away from the Moabites. You see, the Moabites normally possessed the territory up to the Jabbok. But the Amorites had moved in and taken that territory away from them down to the Arnon. So that's what really spooks the Moabites. And as we move on into the next chapter, we discover that the king of the Moabites is so spooked, he calls for, you know, a seer to come from a distant land to come and curse the Israelites, you know. I mean, the guy becomes really uh, neurotic. Because Israel, you see, becomes a greater threat to him than even were the Amorites. As we'll see, uh, we'll see why in a minute here. So the Israelites have actually moved into Amorite territory. Now, we're told in verse 20 that from Bamoth they went to the valley that is in the land of Moab, and they went to the top of Pisgah, which overlooks Jeshimon, the wasteland. Now, I don't know if you can get the drama of this event, but we're talking about the Israelites finally arriving at a place where they could actually look into the land which God has given to them. They can actually stand in Pisgah and they can look to the west and they can see Canaan from south to north. This is the land with which they have been gifted. And after traveling through the wilderness as they have for these 40 years, it had to be a joyous sight because you go to Israel today and it's lots of rocks and a lot of barren land, but in those days it was forested. There are constant references in Scripture to the forests of Ephraim and the forests of Judea. I mean, it was a forested land, which it is not today. They're trying to reforest it, of course, and some of you have contributed uh, to, to having trees uh, planted over there. And there are people you go over there and you find their names are actually at the base of the tree. Uh, well, at certain places like at the uh, Holocaust Museum over there anyway. <clears throat> It's fun to go over there and you go to the Israeli Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem and you walk around and you find a tree planted there and the nameplate at the base of it is Cory Ten Boom, you know. 
and other people who had uh, endeavored to save the Jews. Their names are there and trees have been planted in their honor by the government. They got their view of the promised land. It was no longer just a promise now, it was becoming a reality. And that's something we all look forward to. You and I live in the state of a promise. God has promised to you and he has promised to me eternal life with him in, this, in the great heaven which he has created. It is to us a promise. We're moving towards a promised land. We're wandering through our wilderness. But God sometimes gives us a glimpse. Sometimes it's at the end of our lives, but gives us a glimpse of what it will be like. And of course, the reality will come uh, a little later on. And so it will be for, for each of us. The term Pisgah uh, seems to mean top or head, as in the top of a slope. One of the high points on the western edge. Now, again, let me, let me try to paint this picture for you. If you look into the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Valley is a relatively flat area that starts to become foothillish as you move towards the two sides of the valley. But the Jordan Valley is actually what is known in, in geological terms as a graben which is a German word for grave, and is the term used for down-faulted areas, like Death Valley over here. A down-faulted area, an area that has been dropped because there's a fault running on each side of the valley. And so what you have are escarpments that are produced by, by down-faulting. And so this is not a gentle slope that drops down. I mean, we're talking about, in many places, cliffs that drop down into the valley. And since the valley is below sea level, the entire Jordan Valley is below sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. So the whole Jordan Valley is below sea level. And so you're dropping from cliffs that are 3,000 feet high on, on the Jordanian side and maybe 2,500 feet high on the Israeli side down into this valley. So it's a rather sheer drop-off. And on the edge of this, um, this escarpment is Pisgah. One of the vantage points is called Mount Nebo. And from Mount Nebo, they will look out over the land. Mount Nebo has a ridge that runs out on the northwest. And that ridge drops right off into the valley. And the, the summit on the end of that ridge is believed to be Pisgah. And we're talking about a point which is 2,700 feet above sea level, but 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea down below. From that vantage point, the Israelites would have seen virtually the whole Dead Sea and the whole Jordan Valley up to the north, all the way up to Mount Hermon. And then they would have seen much of the land of Canaan, whatever the atmosphere that particular time would have allowed. Uh, they would have seen there from that viewpoint. Let me read a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 34, the very first verse of Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. And it goes on, and we'll talk about the remaining part of that verse when we get to that point in Moses' life. But the point of this passage is you'll notice that it associates Mount Nebo with Pisgah. It associates them. So Pisgah was one of the summits of Mount Nebo. And it locates it as opposite Jericho. In other words, from there you look down on the city of Jericho. You could probably see it very plainly. It was a little bit south, but 
basically mostly east of the city of Jericho. And then it also says they could see the land of Gilead as far as Dan, which means Moses and the people could, facing west, they could turn to their right, which would be facing north, and they could look along the escarpment down into the valley, see the Jordan River, which, although it's only so far from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, travels twice that far because it winds like this, you know, getting through there. Looking down there onto that, and, and they could see as far north, it says, as Dan. Well, Dan is a city that was located at the very southern edge of Mount Hermon. So they could see all the way to Mount Hermon, which is considerably north of the Sea of Galilee. And this was the view which they got from Pisgah. And it wasn't an inspiring thing for them, for a people who had had no land for four to five centuries had been out of it, you might say. The land had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it had not been a reality. And now they are the generation that will see the reality. It's like us thinking about the fact that Jesus may come in our lifetimes. We may be that generation. And if you dwell on it much, it really can get your, you know, your, uh, what do you call that stuff that flows and makes you? Adrenaline, yes you go. <laughs> get your adrenaline going. You know, we get caught in the humdrum of everyday life. Every morning we have to get up and we have to do certain things and go to work and come home. And, and, you know, to think of something that cuts across it all in such a dramatic way is almost like a dream. And I think many of the Israelites were up there going, oh, is this real? <laughs> you know, is, is this the land? Of course, they weren't in it yet, but they could see it. For Moses, of course, that's all he'll get is to see it. The last word of verse 20 is translated in the NASB as wasteland. It's the term jeshimon in Hebrew. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, you know that as the, as the Jordan River comes south, as it moves towards the Dead Sea, the uh, valley tends to broaden out a little towards the Dead Sea. And between the river itself and the escarpment, there's some pretty rugged land. Uh, today, that area is called the Gore, literally the Gore El Belka, and it's a, it's a, it's a wild land between the f watered, tree-laden, bush-laden, actual floodplain of the Jordan and, and the escarpment. There's this kind of a wild land in between. And that's what is being referred to here, the wasteland down there. They were going to have to cross that wasteland, uh, cross the Jordan, cross some more of that wasteland, and then they could attack Jericho. At least that's what will happen in the future. Well, let's read on at verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into the field or vineyard. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sion gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. And Israel took all of these cities. And Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites. 
who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. And now we come to another war chant, another war song, another remember the Alamo. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sion be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sion, and it devoured Ar of Moab, and the dominant heights of Arnon, literally Bamoth. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. But... We have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid waste even the Nophah, which reaches to Medaba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent out to spy Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the, Mo the Amorites who lived there. That is a very interesting song or poem. And we'll, I don't know if we'll get to explain it all today, but let's move towards that. Moses sends a request to Sion, just as he had to the king of Edom and the king of, Moab, king of Moab. We would like to pass through your land. Give us permission. We won't eat any of your food. We won't drink any of your water. We'll just pass right along the highway. We'll neither look to the right or the left. We'd just like to go through your land. And, of course, Sion says, stuff it. You know, you're not going to do that. As the king of Edom had said and the king of Moab said, you aren't coming through our land. <laughs> the difference, however, is dramatic. When Edom, the king of Edom said, don't come through the land, God said, okay, Israel, you're going to have to go around. But God doesn't say that to Israel here. Because actually, and this is part of the humor of it all, they are already in Sion's territory. You see, they are across the Arnon, which means they are actually in the territory that's under his rule already. So it's kind of like, may we have permission to pass through your land? Of course, we're already there. Kind of like, like an afterthought here. And so... The two major reasons that Sion does not just say, uh, no, you can't, and, and make a show of force like the king of Edom did. You know, he paraded his tanks and flew over with his F-16s and whatever. <laughs> Sion comes out and he doesn't make a demonstration. He attacks Israel. And the reasons for this are, first of all, Israel's already in his land. So he can't just make a demonstration and hope they'll go away because they're already there. And then secondly, God had not prohibited Israel from provoking the Amorites and fighting back. Now, what we have to do is uh, place this event because as you read through here, it kind of doesn't seem to fit exactly. What Moses often does and what you find often in Scripture because the Hebrews were not locked into chronological order like we are. Now, we have this old Greek thing about us that everything's got to go tung, 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 tung. And everything needs to be written in chronological order or we get all confused. But it didn't bother the Hebrews. Uh, they, they didn't always worry about chronological order of things. That's why you read through the Old Testament. It's not in chronological, I mean, in, in a general way it's in chronological order, but in a specific way it is not. Uh, you know, because you come, uh, you come to the end of the uh, Old Testament by the time you get to, you know, basically to the end of uh, Ezra. Nehemiah, actually. And, and yet there's a bunch of it that comes later, right? Well, what happens here is that you go back to verse 19. From Matanah to Nahalil, from Nahalil to Bamoth, this battle is fought in that verse. In other words, it's fought somewhere 
between Matanah, Nahalil, and Bamoth is where the battle is actually fought. It's not mentioned at that time because it wasn't important. Moses was talking about the flow of the movement all the way to Mount Nebo. The battle is fought before they get to Mount Nebo or Pisgah. It's fought before they get there. So he just kind of carried it all the way through the Pisgah, the vision, and now he goes back and says, by the way, there was a battle fought. And this is the battle described in this particular passage. The location of the battle is believed to have been about 10 miles northwest of Matanah and about 18 miles southeast of Nebo. Now, the Amorites were a warlike people. I mean, we're not talking about people who just kind of were out there under their vineyard, under their vine, uh, doing their thing and, and wishing nobody would bother them. They were an aggressive, warlike people. They had just fought Moab and captured that whole hunk of territory that belonged to Moab between the Jabbok and the Arnon. They had taken it away from them. They were an imperialistic power. And so here is Israel, a non-warlike group of nomads who have no military training really, who have had a few battles along the way, gotten a little bit of experience, but here they are up against a real military power in the Amorites. And yet we discover the Amorites are destroyed. Their power is shattered. And this is not a fluke, as we well know. God gave them the victory. We sing the song, Jesus giveth us the victory. God gave Israel the victory. Why did he do that? Because they are listening to his word, they are trusting in his word, and they are obedient to his word. That's why. There are some people who feel that victory ought to be theirs just because they call themselves Christian. No. Victory comes to those who trust and obey and walk in faith with God. They don't take the word of God and say, well, it says this, but God can't really mean this because that's what, not what I like. So I'm going to redefine it. It's not where we define the word according to our thinking, but it's where the word defines our thinking. That's why Paul keeps saying, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. He keeps talking about mindset, mindset, mindset. By the renewing of your mind, he tells in us in Romans 12. God speaks and we listen and we obey whether it seems like a rational thing to do in our sophisticated modern society or not. Before they attempted to take on the task of conquering Canaan, the Israelites had to be made keenly aware of the fact that God will give them the victory no matter how great the odds, no matter how great the odds, God will give them the victory, even over the most formidable armies, because they will meet more difficult armies than the Amorites when they get into Canaan. Alliances of numerous kings will come against them with weapons they've never even seen before. And yet God will give them the victory. Let me, in closing today, read from the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you shall perish. 
You can't do it. The enemy is too formidable. But I will do it? Look what I've done in the past. Look how I routed the Egyptians. And this I will do for you. I will give you the land because you are my people and you are in my will. And God is saying that down through the halls of time to all of us. God gives us the victory even over formidable foes because we are serving Him. And it is His plan and His purpose. We not only have the ultimate victory of walking one day the streets of gold with Him, but we have victory here and now. Doesn't always mean everything is hunky-dory. Doesn't mean we don't get sick. Doesn't mean we don't have financial troubles. It means that through it all as we trust Him, He will bring us to the place of His plan and His will. He will bring us into the green pastures as it will be. And green pastures don't always mean something that feels warm and fuzzy at the moment. It's something that wherein his, his reality is clear to us and we then become that crushed grape as it were and, and the juice flows out to minister to all those around us. And so it is with the whole history of Israel. This is God's way of speaking to you and to me today of the reality of what he wants to do. Well, something wonderful happens. We don't have time to go into it today. We'll look at it next Sunday. But God will give them land. Before they get to Canaan, God gives them a taste. You may have this land. Whoa. God gives good gifts to those that walk in obedience to him.